when we were last here two weeks ago, we covered basically everything in the chapter with the exception of the institution of circumcision. So that's what we will be focusing on this morning. So we're going to be focusing on verses 9 through 14 and 23 through 27. But to give us a little bit of context leading in, we'll start reading uh, with verses 1 and 2. These are the words of God. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. Then moving to verse 7, And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you in their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Then moving to verse 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and that shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant. Then picking up in verse 23, So Abraham took Ishmael his son, all who were born in his house, and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day, Abraham was circumcised and his son Ishmael. And all the men of his house, born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. So if you remember back two weeks ago, we saw that this covenant that God makes with Abraham in Genesis chapter 17 builds on top of the covenant that he already made with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15. Together, the two covenants are are like a sandwich, or they're like a single house, as it were, with a foundation on the bottom and with framing on top. Genesis 15 and the covenant there, that is the foundation. For that is where God called Abraham's attention to the star-told story of the bridegroom's strongman, whereupon Abraham believed in the Lord, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. It's also where the Lord, in making his initial covenant with Abraham, incapacitated Abraham while God walked alone down the path of sacrificial death between the severed animal corpses. 
thus indicating how God was going to fulfill his promises, how he was going to put the covenant into effect, specifically by offering himself in sacrificial death as obedient worship to the Father and substitutionary atonement for his people. So Genesis 15 and its covenant is all about the person and work of Christ. And it's about righteousness, that is, right standing and right relationship with God, all by faith in God's promises concerning Christ. That's why Genesis 15 and the covenant there is the foundation. As Paul says, no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 11. Another way to think about it is this. Genesis 15 and the covenant there are about the question of how we, as fallen sinners, can come to have righteousness, that is, right standing and right relationship with God. And the answer is only by faith in Jesus Christ. Genesis 17 and the covenant there is about a different question. Now that we have right standing and right relationship with God through faith in Christ, how do we grow in that relationship? And how do we pass it on to our children and our children's children? And the answer is only by walking with God by faith. That's where verse 1 comes in. Walk before me and be blameless. Only by walking with God by faith, becoming more and more like him as we do so, availing ourselves of his means of grace along the way, and calling our children to do the same. That, in a nutshell, is what Genesis 17 is calling us to do. And what we see is that the covenant itself is a means of grace. That is, it is a means of informing our faith, instructing our faith, building our faith, strengthening our faith, and conforming us to the image of God. The covenant itself, by itself, is a means of grace because in the covenant, God formalizes his relationship with us by oaths of love and faithfulness. You see, that's what's in view in our text when God says that he is making an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you in their generations. Genesis 17, verse 7. Now you see, that's marriage language. That's wedding language. He's talking about not only a pledge, though, of lifetime love, lifelong love. He's talking about everlasting love, eternal love. And that's why going forward in the scriptures, we're going to see God speak of his uh, his covenant people collectively as his bride. And we'll see him speak of his covenant people individually as his children. We're going to see God say things like when his people were turning away and, and wandering off in faithfulness, he'll say things like, return, O backsliding children, for I am married to you, Jeremiah 3.14. Or my covenant my people broke, though I was a husband to them, Jeremiah 31, 32. 
and unfaithfulness to God we will see described as adultery, spiritual adultery. So the covenant itself is a means of grace in that it is a means of assurance, comfort, blessing, and high calling, a high challenge. And we see the exact same thing in the New Testament with the New Covenant. 1 John 3, verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Or Romans 8, 31 and 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? And yet we have the high calling too, the challenge. Colossians 1 verse 10, walk worthy of the Lord. There's that idea of walking with God again. Walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So the covenant was itself a tremendous means of grace. And that's the same thing we're going to see with the covenant sign of circumcision. Because through circumcision, God was conferring a number of blessings, of which I'm going to mention five this morning. The first blessing that God conferred through circumcision was that God used it to mark out his people as his own. In Romans 4.11, Paul says that circumcision was, among other things, a seal. Now, you have to remember what a seal was in the ancient world or what it was in the Bible. It was the king's signet ring. And it was the impression it made in wax when the king would make a seal with that ring. They would then put that wax seal, it might be on a document or a decree, that would authenticate that document or decree as coming from the king, which made it authoritative. It might go on a lock, something that the the king wanted shut and locked. That means the king has locked this and you don't unlock it. It might go on something just to identify that it belonged to the king. This was the king's property. That's idea, that's a part of the idea of circumcision being a seal. Those circumcised bore the king of heaven's seal upon them. They belonged to him. So circumcision is that royal seal marking out God's people, similar to the way that baptism and the Lord's Supper mark out God's people in the New Testament. In fact, If you look uh, at the language of circumcision here in Genesis 17, verses 10 and 11, where God doesn't just say that circumcision is a sign of the covenant, in verse 10 he says, This is my covenant, which you shall keep, you shall be circumcised. And then he says, it is the sign of the covenant. So he says it's a sign of the covenant, but then he says it is the covenant. Well, that's the exact same kind of language that Jesus used when he was instituting the Lord's Supper in Luke chapter 22. He took bread and gave thanks and broke it and said to them, This is 
my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Now, you see, that kind of language goes beyond the language of a sign or a seal. That's the language of a sacrament. And that's the same thing we have going on with circumcision. So that's the first blessing conferred by circumcision. God used it to mark out his people. The second blessing God conferred through circumcision is that God pointed to, through circumcision, he pointed to and proclaimed the covenantal foundation of righteousness, right standing and right relationship with God, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 4.11, Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. Now we've already seen that circumcision was a seal marking God's ownership of his people. Here we see it was also a seal confirming that righteousness, right standing and right relationship with God, is only available one way. And that's the same way it came to Abraham, which is being accounted righteous by faith in God's promises regarding the promised seed, who is Jesus Christ. Circumcision was a sign of the same thing. Now, a sign in Scripture is something that points to something else or that testifies of something else or witnesses to something else or proclaims something else. A sign can be an object. A sign can be an act, whether a, just a mundane act or whether a miraculous act. A sign can also be uh, a series of acts, a process or a ritual but it always points to something else. It testifies of something else. It proclaims something else. The entire Gospel of John is built around seven signs, seven miracles that Jesus worked, which pointed to and testified of and proclaimed what? That Jesus was who he claimed to be. He was the promised Messiah, and he was the Son of God. That's what a sign does. So circumcision is a sign of the righteousness of the faith which Abraham had long before he was circumcised. You've got to remember, it's been like 14 years now at least since Genesis 15. Because Ishmael had not even been conceived at that point, and now Ishmael is 13 years old. Plus, you have to have nine months of pregnancy and maybe a little more time in there. So you're talking 14 years has gone by. That's what it is pointing to and testifying of. The third blessing God conferred through circumcision was that through it, God enacted certain key aspects of our salvation in Christ. God, through circumcision, the ritual of circumcision, enacted certain key aspects of our salvation in Christ. Look at Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 11. In him, that is, in Christ, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands 
by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. So we see here, first of all, that circumcision was a ritual. It wasn't simply the fact of having been circumcised. It was the obedient, faith-based act of cutting away the foreskin as I said, in faith and obedience to God. Now, it's important for us to understand that circumcision was not unique to Abraham and his descendants. Circumcision was common among the ancient people who were around Abraham and his clan. It was practiced in Egypt. It was practiced among many of the tribes of Canaan. It was practiced among many of the Arabs. Now, it was not universal. It was not practiced by the Philistines, nor was it uh, apparently a practice by the Mesopotamians where Abraham came from because Abraham is now 99 years old and he is not circumcised. The point is it was common. It was well known. It was not something new. And circumcision already was assigned all sorts of meaning, all sorts of social meaning and so forth by the various tribes that practiced it. What made circumcision that God commanded to Abraham unique was, number one, the redemptive faith-based reasons for which God gave it. Faith, and number two, the faith and obedience it would take to carry it out. Think about the fact that every male in the entire clan, you're talking about thousands of males here. Abram had a large clan around him, thousands of people. You're talking about thousands of men, every single male in the entire clan, regardless of age, regardless of position, regardless of of what their function was is going to be bloodied and in a lot of pain and and essentially incapacitated for a series of days. That's what this means. It says that Abraham and every single male among them, thousands of them, that very same day were were circumcised. Old men like Abraham. Lads like Ishmael, little baby boys, eight days old, all are being circumcised that very same day. That only happens by faith. That kind of obedience only comes about by faith. The other thing that was unique about this circumcision is that is who it was commanded toward and when. You see, in the, in the cultures around them, the tribes around them that practice circumcision, from everything that we can tell today, it was normally connected to like a male coming of age, reaching puberty or, or graduating to manhood, a rite of passage, so to speak, or it was done in anticipation 
of marriage. But we have none of that in the circumcision that God gives to Abraham. Here it's to be given to every single male connected to him, regardless of age or situation, right down to the baby boys eight days old. So that was unique. Now all of this was to enact and drive home the fact, you see what's being pictured here is that all the men are fallen and dead in sin. Skin is being cut away from the most private, the most personal, the most hidden away member of a male which is a good, a very pointed way of saying that we in ourselves are not acceptable to the Lord and that only He can make us acceptable. He has to do a work. And we know that this is ultimately picturing the work of the Holy Spirit that He has to do spiritually, cutting away our foreskin, the body of our death, the power of sin within us, our deadness unto God, All of that has to be cut away by the Spirit through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, through our union with Him by faith. And it was a picture that they could not reproduce their way out of this. You couldn't have children. That was a common belief in the ancient world that in children, you know, this way a kind of salvation is going to come about. We're incapable of reproducing our way out of this. We're in a helpless situation. God himself must act through his son, the promised seed of Abraham, who will put off the bodies of sins of the flesh. Now, this is why we will see going forward in Scripture, God admonish his people to circumcise their hearts. You see, what was very clear to them that this physical act of cutting away the foreskin is a picture, an enactment of something that happens spiritually in salvation. And and this, this outside truth is supposed to be taken inside as well. It's not one or the other. It is supposed to be both. Deuteronomy 10, verse 16. Circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. That was the admonition. This is why Paul in Romans chapter 2, said that circumcision that was outward only was no circumcision at all. Not really. And it's why he said that a Jew who was one outwardly only is not a Jew at all. Not really. Romans 2.28, He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart and the spirit, not in the letter. Whose praise is not from men. It's not about the social status you can get from it. But just praise from God. It's about right standing and right relationship with God by faith and union with Christ. So that's what circumcision enacted by the cutting away of the foreskin. The fourth blessing that God conferred through circumcision is that God reclaimed and began to restore key aspects of human life in keeping with God's original glorious purposes. God, through circumcision, was reclaiming and beginning to restore, to transform 
key aspects of human life in keeping with his original glorious purposes. To understand this, let's use a New Testament analogy. Think of the Lord's Supper. What did Jesus do in the Lord's Supper? First of all, he took a common activity, a meal, a family meal. That's as common as you can get. It's a practice by everybody around the world. It was a common meal involving common foods, bread and wine, eaten and drank by people the world over. He takes these common elements in a common activity and he assigns it all a new meaning. The partaking of his body and his blood, which was given in death, that we might be restored to God's family and to fellowship with him and one another, which is the wellspring of life. If you think back, okay, so he's laying hold of this very common thing we have because meals and fellowship go together, right? If there's ever a time that the family's going to come together and it's going to become visible to the world, as it were, what's going to bring them together? Some kind of meal, right? Maybe it's Thanksgiving, a special day, but it's going to be some kind of meal. And that's why people regularly sit down together. And it's like you don't just eat, well, you fellowship. I mean, that goes without saying. You fellowship together around the meal. And when you look back, you can see in the beginning, that's what meals were all about. That's what the tree of life was all about in the Garden of Eden. Where did God meet with Adam and Eve? In the Garden of Eden. What are they going to do there? They're going to fellowship with God. They're going to eat of the tree of life. Do they need the tree of life to have life? No. Where did life come to them from, from the start? God breathed the breath of life into Adam, and then he drew Eve from Adam. Life only comes from one place, ultimately, because there's only one being that has life in himself, and that's the living God. God gives life directly, and then God chooses to continue to give life through food immediately. God doesn't need the food. Why does he create it? Why is he going to all the trouble? He creates it because he wants to teach us something about where life comes from. It comes from communion with the living God and with one another, which is what meals are all about. That's what they're about. Getting life, fellowship from God, fellowship from one another. So we see that by Jesus taking this common activity and these common elements and laying hold of it, reclaiming it, and beginning to transform this common activity, he's taking it back to what God intended from the beginning. Now, this is why Paul in 1 Corinthians talks in terms of, of the body of Christ, the local church coming together as a congregation around the Lord's Supper, that the Lord's Supper is what confects, that's the language he used, it confects the family. It takes the family of God, it puts it together, and it displays it to the world. And that fellowship between the family and God and one another, that is life, folks. That is life. That's what, you see what Jesus is doing there. He's restoring all this back to what God originally intended. Now, that's what God is doing with circumcision in our text 
in Genesis 17. He has taken a common, well-known activity, circumcision, that had been assigned all kinds of different social meanings by all these various tribes. He is taking that, he is sanctifying it to his own purposes. He is assigning it new meaning, which have the purpose of reclaiming that and restoring it back to what God originally intended. So what exactly is he reclaiming here and what is he restoring? Everything that had to do with the fundamental command that God gave to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and take dominion. This was a great privilege that they had as the images of God, that's his sons and daughters, to image him throughout the world, to turn the world into his kingdom. They have to multiply, they have to fill the earth, they have to take dominion. That's what God is reclaiming when he specifies the ritual of circumcision. He is reclaiming everything that has to do with multiplication. That's why he is cutting away skin from the male sexual member. He is reclaiming everything that relates to sex, everything that relates to procreation, everything that relates to marriage, everything that relates to family, everything that relates to child raising, you see? And so when we look at this and we think, oh, wait a minute, the covenant sign was only given to males, we're completely missing the scope of what God was reclaiming and beginning to renew, which is everything related to what I was just saying, multiplying and being fruitful. Because remember, God joined Adam and Eve as husband and wife before the fall. So all of these things are bound up together That's what God is reclaiming through the circumcision, all of that together, and he's beginning to renew it back to what God originally intended. So the fifth and final blessing I want to discuss was the fact that through these first four blessings that we just talked about, God marking out his people as his own, God pointing back to righteousness by faith, Uh, in the promised seed, God enacting through circumcision important aspects of our salvation in Christ, and God reclaiming and beginning to renew this whole area of life having to do with being fruitful and multiplying and taking dominion. Through those things, God was conferring a fifth blessing, which is He was acting to ensure that all of his covenant people and their children over the generations would be nurtured in the faith, built up in the faith, and thus would walk faithfully with God and one another. Abraham and everyone connected to him, right down to the wee little ones, were claimed by God as his own. God isn't calling to his people from afar and beckoning them or some part of them to consider embracing this foreign thing called faith. No, what he is doing is immersing them in faith. He is surrounding them 
with faith. He is immersing them in worship and in obedience to the living God. That's why every single week we say it, Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and, and strength. And these words which I command you shall be in your heart. So we see always in God's covenantal action, and we see it with circumcision, the first place God turns us is where? Up. Up to Him. Our relationship, our right standing with Him by faith in Christ. He turns our eyes up to Him. Where's the next place He turns our eyes? Down to ourselves, down to our own heart. Walk with God. Walk in His presence. Walk, become like Him. That's what children are supposed to do. Imitate your Father. Walk in His footsteps. And then where does He turn our eyes? Down to our children. These words which I command you today shall be in your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You see, faith everywhere, worship everywhere, obedience everywhere. This is the environment. Children are to come up not to the faith, but in the faith. It's, they're supposed to live and move and have their being in an ocean of faith and worship and obedience. They're to breathe it and to drink it and to eat it and to live and work within it. This is God's way. It was then and it is still now. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.